This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. An explosive report reveals a connection between white supremacists and some police departments. It's not just that white supremacists might join police departments, but that people in police departments might join white supremacist organizations. Former FBI agent Michael German has seen it from the inside out. Coming up in this episode of Colors. She heard co-workers whispering behind her back. Some even said it to her face. And so after a staff meeting, I cornered my boss and I said, did you hire me because I was black? And without missing a beat, he said, yes, I hired you because you're black. That's Michelle Singletary. That happened to her more than 20 years ago as a new hire at the Washington Post. He guided me to his office. I sat down on the couch and I just remember just wanting to be swallowed by that couch. She's now the Washington Post personal finance columnist. You have to hear what her boss said that made her stick around and how she's paying it forward. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core and I'm white. And this is Colors. JJ, I'm really excited about our guest uh, today. It's Michelle Singletary. She's a syndicated columnist for the uh, Washington Post. Her, her column is called The Color of Money. And uh, she and I share something in common in that we're both incredibly frugal. And so I, part of the reason I enjoy reading her <laughs> column is because, boy, do we agree on most things, if not everything. But the reason I wanted to get her on this edition of Colors was because a piece that ran recently, um, it has her as a 29-year-old woman going in to ask her boss at the Washington Post if he hired her because she's black. Michelle, welcome to Colors. Can you walk us through that conversation in 1992? I can. Thank you so much um, for having me. So I was um, just newly at the Washington Post, maybe just a couple months. And um, behind my back, I was hearing people say things and actually even to my face, I, I got to the Post at a, in a fairly quick pace. Uh, and so people were, you know, guessing that I got there because I was black or I was the minority hire. I was, it was just affirmative action. And so it just weighed on me so much because I never would want a job that I wasn't qualified for. And so after a staff meeting, I cornered my boss. um, And I said, and I simply, the first question I said, did you hire me because I was black? And without missing a beat, he said, yes. I hired you because you're black. And I could just feel my heart cave in and I'm thinking, so all those things those people are saying are true. And then he said, I need you to come into my office and sit down because clearly we have to talk about this. 
And so he, he guided me into his office. I sat down on the couch and I just remember just wanting to be swallowed by that couch. And he pulled a chair up in front of me. It's a coffee table. It's like, I remember it from yesterday. It was a coffee table between us and he pulled a chair up um, in front of uh, the coffee table and me. And he said, but I also hired you because you're uh, come from a low income background. I also hired you because you um, are getting your master's degree in business. I hired you because you have a great expertise in bankruptcy. And he just started to go through this whole list of the reasons why you're a good reporter, you're funny, you're intuitive. And I just, and, and initially I didn't even hear him say those things, the first sentence about, you know, that he hired me because I was, you know, getting my master's because I was all in my head and I was just, you know, tearing up. And then I tuned into what he was saying and he just, I finally heard him say, I hired you because of the totality of who you are. And, and then because, we just had a conversation. Because he wanted to mentor you. And that he wanted to mentor me. He said, you know, I saw great potential. You were already good, but I see that you could be better at the post and and I see good things for you here. And he just went on. He said, don't you let anybody ever make you feel like you do not deserve to be here. Um, and I remember that conversation because he did not run away from my blackness. He could have said, oh, of course not. I didn't hire you because you were black and, you know, go into all these other things. But, you know, he wanted to say that there were things about you and your childhood. I grew up low income. I was raised by my grandmother. And he was just, you know, and that's not uniquely black, but my experience as a young black woman counted and mattered and would help my reporting and would help the post. Um, yeah. And so years later, when I decided to write this series, I wanted to start off with that because it was such a compelling um, conversation and one that um, to this day, whenever I'm questioned about whether I'm supposed to be someplace or I was there just because I was black or I, you know, whatever. Um, I remember what he said that, you know, my blackness matters. It's okay to own that and, and be okay with the fact that that was one of the qualities yeah. that made me a good hire. Well, you certainly were a good hire and still are. And I can say that uh, I am kicking myself because I have not read your stuff more than, than I have over the years, but I'm reading it now <laughs> and I'm going back and looking at things that I hadn't read before. In this series that you wrote, in this very first piece that you wrote, you said, at the time, I was one of only two blacks in the business section, but I, I listened as my coworker, someone I liked and admired, complained that perhaps one day soon, white men would be an endangered species in the newsroom, and you said to him, stand up, look around. Do you see a shortage of white men around here? <laughs> and so take us into the room with you at that moment. It, it's a true story. People wonder if you're making this stuff up. I'm not making any of this up. Um, it was early morning, and he and I tended to be one of the first in the business section because, you know, a lot of times we, most people weren't coming in until around 10. It's a business section. Um, and so he would come in actually to do stock trades <laughs> so he could do it before the day started. And I came in early because I was living in Baltimore and I was always afraid the traffic would make me late. So I would leave so I could get there super early. So oftentimes it was just he and I in the section before everybody started to filter in. And his desk was right across from mine. And he's 
taking care of his business. And I don't know what prompted the conversation, but it got we got to the conversation about affirmative action and, and so forth. And he made that statement. And, you know, oftentimes when people make statements like that, especially this was a seasoned reporter, somebody who I respected and liked. And you don't say anything because you don't want to be appeared that you're super sensitive. But I, it just enraged me um, because he said, you know, proceeding to no offense to you. So no offense. I'm saying this, you know, racist thing to you. <laughs> you. And I just, you know, and I can't when I the, my quality is when I get mad, I get sassy. And so, you know, I I don't know how I mustered the, the gumption to say what I said, but I actually said that. I said, stand up and look around. How many white people do you see around here? You know, and by that time, people were coming in. And so it was predominantly white. It was predominantly male. Um, and I just said, you know, what you just said is just ridiculous. Just And, and, and it, to, even to this day, there is this us against them. There is, if we hire a black person, that means we couldn't hire a white person. As if there's just one pie and, and we can only slice it up a certain amount of time uh, slices. And that if I got a job, basically what he's saying is I took a job from a white guy or if a black is hired, they took a job from someone else as opposed to that was my job. Um, and we often find, and it's so interesting the response to this columnist because I hear people, uh, people have been writing to me and saying, well, I did lose a job because the manager told me they had to hire a black person. Instead of those person thinking, maybe he was just telling you that because that was an easy way to tell you I'm not hiring you. Um, and you put it on the black folks and you put it on this sort of notion that affirmative action is keeping you from a particular job. Um, we don't say that. Let's say he was up against, you know, a white person or a couple white persons. The manager would never say, I didn't hire you because I had to hire a white person. Um, and so I think that is the, the root of a lot of this assumption that black folks are getting jobs that should have gone to more qualified uh, white job candidates. Do you, do you think um, since this initial conversation with your editor um, in the business section was uh, 28 years ago, how do you think um, society in general has changed in the last 28 years? Has it gotten better when it comes to terms of um, leveling the playing field and, and equal opportunity or not? There has been progress. Um, uh, there are places of employment that are more diversified, um, but the progress has been slow. And I feel that there, there has been a lot of backlash um, to the efforts to um, increase um, the minorities, women um, uh, in the job. So while there has been progress, not enough. Uh, and that's actually what prompted me to write this column. Here I am at the Post almost 30 years later, and the section has about the same number of, of African-Americans. And, and our newsroom is still, you know, let's be honest, you know, we're still struggling with this. We've done a great job, but there's still, so we're not immune to it. And so, yes, I think there's been lots of progress where I work and other workplaces, but still not enough. And it's not that, it's that part, that not enough part that prompted me to write this series. And I think you're, that's why you're seeing so much protest and people saying, look, we gotta get this right and we've gotta get it right now. You know, uh, I was reading your piece, uh, one of your pieces, and um, I was thinking, 
you know, and I spoke with you a little earlier about uh, some things, and you talked about the response, and you just mentioned the response again. But one of the things you said stuck with me as I listened to you talk today about that feedback again. You said to me, you know, some people's minds, you're simply not going to change. doesn't matter how much you write, you say, you do, you demonstrate. Some people's minds are just simply made up. And as I look at what's taking place in this country right now in regards to a number of things from coronavirus to elections to other things, people have dug in and they simply are unwilling to move on things. And I'm wondering... As you've worked your way through this series and you look back at what you learned over the years and what you continue to learn, have you figured out a way that maybe we can try again to change some minds or is it simply a lost cause? Um, that's such a great question. Um, I wish we had like three hours. Um, it is not a lost cause. Uh, and it's so interesting you should ask that because when I told my white female editor about this, she was like, let's do it and let's do it like yesterday. And, um, and we talked about who, that, who are we trying to reach? And there are some folks we're not going to reach. And I've gotten emails from those folks. You know, someone who was, you know, 80 years old saying, you know, black people just don't want to work and you just don't know how to do this. I'm not going to reach that person. I'm just not but that's not the person I'm going for. I'm going for that person who may be saying things and doing things and not realizing that it's racist or biased right. or offensive. Um, and there are a lot of those folks out there because I've heard from them. I've heard from hiring managers, like I did not realize that when I said to maybe a job candidate um, that I have to hire a black person, what I was communicating. Or I've heard from hiring managers says, thank you. I now have the words to show my managers why diversity matters. And then it's okay that we're looking for African-American or black hires. It's okay that we're trying to increase the women on our staff. It's okay that we're trying to increase the Asians and Hispanic and Latina. And, 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 and sexual orientation, it's okay. And this is why. Those are the people that I'm trying to reach because they will make a difference. If I can just reach one hiring manager who will do it the right way and then increase the, increase the diversity on their staff, I have done my job. Because when you reach one person, you're reaching many more. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like when I teach financial literacy and sometimes I'll show up at a forum and there may be just a few people there and the hosts are so embarrassed. They've advertised and not a lot of people come because, you know, who wants to come to a seminar about, you know, money? Um, and I always say to them, this is not a waste of my time, because if I reach one of those three people, that one person is living in a household of four or five and they've got cousins and aunties and grandmoms and dads you know, and friends. And so I'm not just reaching that one person. And so I'm not reaching just that one hiring manager. That manager will influence other managers. Yes. And so I am not daunted at all. Each one, teach one. That's right. Absolutely. Is there a, is there a racial component to financial literacy? I'm just curious. It didn't occur to me until you just said that. When you say racial component, what do you mean? I mean, um, do, is there, is the way that, Black people look at finances different 
fundamentally than white, or is it based on just how much money they have or how, how educated they are, or is there any other factor? I have no idea. That, just, that question just came out of the blue for you said when you do these seminars. Yeah, so no, yes and no. So is it different? Of course it's different because our lens is different. We see things differently. You know, in this country, we like to forget that slavery happened. We wanna make it seem like it happened so long ago that it has no impact now. And yet in my lifetime, uh, I've, I've only in my life been able to, in my lifetime, be able to apply to any college that I wanted or live or, or try to move into a neighborhood that I want. Um, and, and so I was raised by my grandmother and her you know, grandfather was just out of slavery. His mother was a slave. And all the things that she taught me was from that lens, to be fearful, to not trust the white man, to you know, just, you gotta be better than everybody. Can you imagine the pressure that you can't be just ordinary? You can't just be a B student because you, know, you wanna do other things and not just be in your books all the time time. You've got to just be better at everything to prove that we are smart and, and capable. So imagine all that pressure or the pressure of having your family split up from slavery. And so there's no history of intact families because by law, they could sell your husband off or because you couldn't find jobs in the South, the men went off to the North and then they couldn't find jobs when they did go up to the North, too embarrassed to go back home and then leave their wife or, or the mother of their children to, to, to fend for themselves. So there's a backstory that we cannot forget and blacks don't forget. So yeah, we look at money differently because of our history, but the basics of money, no. You know, there are white people who don't spend their money the way they're supposed to, there are black people who don't spend the way they money. <laughs> for sure. Right. You know, we are a country of debtors, right. black debtors, white debtors. Um, so in terms of the basics of understanding how money operates, they're not, we're not that different. And, and, and I have to tell you this, Chris, it's a really good question because I'll do seminars in front of black audiences and they will get up and say, well, you know, we spend a lot of money on sneakers or we spend a lot of money getting our hair done or dead, you know? And I say, well, you know what? White people spend a lot of money on their clothes too. <laughs> they buy a lot of electronics they can't afford. Um, so in that sense, no, we share the same bad and good principles as Americans. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no monolithic way to look at abuse of money. <laughs> uh, right. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, we're just now in this country, Michelle, arriving at a place where blacks and whites get another shot at dealing with race out in the open where we can be frank. There is, as we say in the news business, sometimes a hook that got us here, you know, the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud uh, Arbery situation and all of the others that have taken place, not to diminish any of them, where we're just now dealing with some, some racial issues that have been out there for a long time that we should have dealt with a long time ago. One of the things I'm starting to hear from people who listen to this series saying, okay, uh, we, you know, it's not just about black and white. Uh, we need to talk about other things. We need to talk about other races and other racial issues, which is what we do. But do you get this pressure from people saying, stop talking about black versus white? 
uh, and and start talking about other races as well? We do. And I and I understand because we want to be inclusive of everyone who has been disadvantaged. Um, and so there is the tendency to say, well, what about this or what about that? Um, and what about this and what about that does matter. But right now, the conversation I'm having as a black woman yes. is um, specific to me. And so the series, the 10 part series is only focused on blacks because that's my experience. I've only been black. <laughs> um, and um, and so we had that discussion. And, and as I'm writing and I see other information about other cultures and races that are having similar issues, I want to put it in there. And then I say, you know what? No, this is my personal story of what it was like to start at, a, you know, one of the best newspapers in the country and having people question whether I deserve to be there because I'm black. Yeah. This is my story of what that felt like to my soul, to my confidence from people who I admired, who probably didn't even mean it. Um, some did, they were just racist, I'm gonna just tell you, and some didn't. And so I need to tell that story because through our stories, our individual stories, you paint a picture that will then help those others who are having similar issues. And so when we say life, Black Lives Matter, we're not saying blue lives don't matter or Asian lives don't matter or white lives that matter. We're saying I'm only one of those. Listen to me and what I am going through because right now that's what we gotta fix for my life and my children. My daughter who is you know, going, she's a junior in college last year, a teacher says something to her completely out of inappropriately and really racist. My daughter, it's 2020. She's at a university mm-hmm. and, a, and a professor is saying something to her that is completely racist. That's my story, my black child story. And I get to tell it. And I don't have to bring in all of this other stuff to tell this story. Can you, what, 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 what did he say if you're allowed to share that? So she, my my daughter, who's an honor student, you always sort of, you know, it's so funny when you're black, you got to always put that in there. Like she's an honor student or she's this, or he never had a criminal record. You got to almost put it out there to try to, try to say, oh, she's a good one, right? Even we do this, even we do it. Um, because that's how we've been trained, right? Yep. So my daughter uh, was having a trouble with one of the assignments and she went to her professor and was trying to get clarity on the assignment. Uh, and the, 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 the professor t- says to her, this was halfway through the semester. She, my daughter had been speaking up and in class, so she knew who she was. She said, well, is English your first language? Huh. <laughs> my, my black American daughter, clearly she's black American, African American. And my daughter was so hurt by that because she was putting her down. She was making it sound like she didn't speak the King's English. So or she didn't understand the King's English. So, so she couldn't understand the, um, the assignment. And she came home and she was very upset and very shaken. And she never went back to that professor for help anymore. My daughter is an honor student. She's been on the Dean's list since she started at this university. For her to hear that from a professor at a Stellar University just belittle her. And, and think about that. Even if she wasn't, it wasn't her native language. What does that have to do with anything? She's coming to you for help. So if, in fact, maybe English isn't her second language, why wouldn't you say, okay, let's sit down and talk about, and how can I help you? Why would that matter? 
And so really, she just insulted two groups of people with that one comment. You can see how angry I am. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> and, um, and my daughter, I said, you should report this. And she said, no, 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 I'm not going to. She didn't want to report it during the semester. Um, and she still hasn't. And I, you know, I, you know, I'm trying. I'm one of those parents. So I like itching to tell the department head what happened. Um, so I tell you that story to say that I have to tell my black story. You tell your story. When we all tell our stories, mm-hmm. things can get fixed and addressed. Yeah, that is that's absolutely brilliant, Michelle. I have always said, and certainly much more so in the last few months, racism is built on the foundations of other destructive behaviors that are completely acceptable in this country. You know, hatred, treating each other poorly, not acknowledging coworkers, marginalizing them, gossiping about them. All of those things are part of the or part of the racist process. And I've, I've often said that if we can do more to eliminate those kinds of hostile and hateful and ugly behaviors, then we may have a better path towards dealing with racism as a general practice, a general matter in this country. And I'm wondering what you think. I think you're spot on. Um, I'm going to actually take a little different angle because I think you're right. We Basically, what you're saying is we just need to be nicer to, to each other, more considerate, more loving, more understanding. Um, but when it comes to money in particular, hmm. um, you know, we have to understand the backstory of, of, of why things are, you know, um, and that I think will help eliminate some of the racism. When you say things like, well, you know, black people don't handle their money well. Um, well, what money? You mean the money that you tried not to give us because you didn't give us the jobs that we deserved, even though we're qualified for? You mean um, why are we concentrating in one neighborhood? Because you mean because we couldn't buy homes in other neighborhoods? Um, and that kind of goes back to this whole idea that this us versus them when it comes to money. This is, goes back to why people are so hostile, because people are afraid that if they give something to someone else, it's going to be taken from them. And that is the basis of a lot of the hatred that you talked about, a lot of behavior in the job place. Why do people um, clawing at each other in the same job and company? Because if I succeed, the company succeeds, you succeed. But we have set each other up, even in our own companies, to compete against each other. And when you think that there's only going to be one manager spot, then people are going to backstab. They're going to gossip. They're going to try to figure out a way to get ahead. And some of that way of get ahead is to marginalize and discriminate against Blacks. Because if I can knock out, the more people I can knock out, the more I can get on this particular job or or bonus. Um, And I think that is the source of a lot of what's happening. So you're absolutely right. Um, You know, I I've always felt and my grandmother told me something when I first started working. I'll just never forget this. She always used to give me these little lessons to go out on my job. And she said, when you go, she always pointed her finger at me, too. When you get to that job, you be nice to that janitor. As as nice as you to that janitor as you would be to the person who who owns that company. Don't you treat anybody bad because of what they're doing at their job. And I'll never forget that. And so whenever I worked, I am nice to everybody. If you are, 
I don't, and I don't even ignore people. If you're emptying my chest, ch- uh, my wastebasket by my desk, I turn to you and go, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Even though that's a person's job, I'm thanking them for that. And I'm, when I started at the post, um, and I know this is sort of a very long winded to answer your question, but I, when I started at the post, I used to travel from Baltimore and I'm, as Chris said at the top of the hour, at the top of the program, I'm very frugal. So I don't carry around a lot of money. And I happened to leave my wallet at home and I uh, came in and I just didn't have money for even parking. So I was so nice to the parking attendant. He said, don't worry about it. Just park. You got, I got you. Then I got into the building and I was talking to the guard who was letting me in and I was looking for my badge. And I said, I cannot believe I left my wallet home. I don't have money for parking or lunch because I didn't pack my lunch. I know, Chris, it was like, <laughs> you probably are dying right now. And you know that guard who I didn't even know because I had been just talking to him. And, you know, as I came in, he gave me, he said, here, take this $20. I know you're good for it. Um, and, and, and to, you know, whatever. And so, but he wouldn't have done that because I took the time when I mm-hmm. would come in to say, how you doing? What's up? You know, and just have a little bit of conversation with them from the thing that my grandmother told me um, that, and I think if we had more of that, we could eliminate um, or at least get to some of the root of racism and hatred and all the things that we're dealing with. If you just look at everybody that you encounter as your equal, that I think is the key. Everybody is equal to me. I may have two degrees, but that person working at that station at the front of my building is protecting me from someone coming in to hurt me. He, he or she is as valuable as I am, their marquee you know, columnist who has two degrees. And that is to me the root. We are all really, really equal. Wow. I have to say, um, so I'm an avid reader of newspapers and there's certain columns in newspapers that are treats. And for the last 20 some years, your column has always been a treat to me. I've, I've enjoyed every yeah. one of them and I've been, it's been wonderful to talk to you here on this podcast. You're just great. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And, you know, I've been listening to you forever, core values and everything. Plus, I love your voice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, I'm so glad you had this program and this conversation and you're asking the questions. And this is what it's going to take. Programs like yours and this series. Let's just talk, y'all. Let's just let's ask me whatever you want. Um, and I'm going to tell you, I, if I have to explain to you to a hundred times, that's okay. I'm going to explain it to you because I, I just want my kid not to do go through what I went through. I don't want my child to show up at a job and they think she got it because she's black. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I want managers to understand that diversity means that you have people with so many different viewpoints that your product is going to be better. Your newspaper is going to be better. Your radio program is going to be better. Your podcast is going to be better. It just helps us all. Yeah. You know, I am a big proponent of uh, superhero movies, series, comic books, whatever we have. I've just discovered a new one. Michelle Singletary. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> and her grandmother. Yes. 
appreciate that. Except Thank- I can't get into that costume. It's way too tight. <laughs> <laughs> you can wear whatever you want to wear. I appreciate that. Thank you so and much. And you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to wear a mask either. Yeah, I, 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 you know, it's funny you should say that because I did have to take off a mask to do this series. Yeah. I get deeply personal with some things. Yeah. And um, it's pretty hard. You know, it's pretty hard to bear your soul. You nailed it out there for people to criticize it, you yeah. know, but you nailed it, though. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. You're listening to Colors. Hey, my name is Rajesh. I'm American, but my race is mixed with Indian and Hispanic. And my current location is Ohio. So what is my view on the race in America? Well, America today has not built an infrastructure for minorities to work under efficiently. Yeah, we're not there yet. But keep in mind, many other countries are dealing with the same racist problem. The question is, which country can be intellectual enough to celebrate the differences as an opportunity, like an opportunity for growth rather than a threat? I'm hoping that the U.S. will lead in equality, showing an example for the rest of the world. And that's my view. My name is Dimitra Ganyas, and I live in Connecticut. I am a first-generation American Greek. For both of my parents, who immigrated to the U.S. when they were young, America was the promised land. I grew up hearing and watching how hard work and education paved the way to the American dream. They still do. But as an adult and a mother, I know we don't all start on equal footing. There's a missing piece to the equation that people of color have to overcome. I certainly don't have the answer as to the solution, but I do believe it starts with conversation, the type of real, open, vulnerable dialogue that has bubbled to the surface of this country over the last several months. This is Colors. A dialogue on race in America. Well, Michelle Singletary remains one of my favorites. Uh, I, I do just absolutely love her column and the common sense that she shows in it. And um, she, <laughs> what a delightful interview! One of the one of the most fun interviews we've had, I think. Yeah, you know, I was not kidding when I said that this is the this is this woman is a superhero. And I haven't figured out yet what name she gets Super Dollar or I don't know. <laughs> it could be Super Michelle or something, but the Queen of Cash <laughs> could be. <laughs> but she absolutely nailed so many things in that interview, from just the humble nature of success, um, real true success. I mean, talking about coming to work with nothing, not even your ID or money, a penny in your pocket, and getting taken care of by people because you've shown them love and kindness, yep. and understanding how to be frugal. The two degrees, how to work her way into uh, an amazing job at the Washington Post and to parlay it and to continue to show and help other people along the way. I just thought it was fantastic. But, you know, perception, you know, is, is, is very important in life. And I saw something on Facebook not too long ago, and uh, I sent it to you, and I, 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 I was kind of moved by it. But I sent it to you because I wanted to get your thoughts on it. And it was a posting about two minutes long by a former NBA guy. His name is John Amici. Uh, and, 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 and he it's about white privilege. And he says, 
you know, what's up with that? It's a clear-eyed explanation from him. He's a psychologist now, but he played in the NBA at one point, and he talked about how people don't necessarily understand white privilege. There's so many things that we need to think about when we think about privilege, which would help us to understand why white privilege is such a big thing now. And I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I hope we can get him on the on our podcast sometime. Well, he, the way he compared it really is that that got through to me is it's kind of like if you um, are very able-bodied and you're able to do everything you want to do and you don't have to think twice about it, you don't realize what a challenge it is for people with handicaps because it you know it amounts to the same thing. You don't realize if if someone needs a wheelchair that there's just a constant challenge of looking for a ramp or looking for a way or looking for and you don't think about that and you're not you don't think about it in a, because you're being mean. It just doesn't occur to you because it's not part of your everyday life. I, and I think that mm-hmm. the way he used that analogy, I think, is one of the best ways to explain white privilege to me. Yeah, and it, you know, it it goes back to what I was telling you before. You mentioned it, um, Father Ganey, talking about that parishioner on one yeah. of our earlier shows about she got up. There wasn't a day in her life that this African American woman who got up every day there there wasn't a day in her life when she didn't experience racism. I think that's what he's talking about. A lot of, a lot of people are just oblivious to that. Uh, in in their own daily lives about this the struggles of others. So you and I have done now about, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 of these, and things like learning what white privilege is is something I've learned. What have you learned from these programs? The thing, patience is what I've learned. Um, Honestly, honest honest to God. What I've learned from these programs is patience. Because this is a very tough topic that we're doing. And it may seem like second nature because we've been doing it for decades, going back almost 30 years uh, and maintaining a relationship over those years. It has not been easy to do this. Um, You know, we all have moments when we just get frustrated, we get tired, we get angry. Um, But the one thing that I've discovered about all of this is if I apply a little bit of patience to my view of whatever it is that's going on, especially as far as this podcast goes. It it helps me to better understand um, the opportunity that each challenge that this podcast shows me, um, it helps me to better use that challenge to learn from it and, and to be better. good example of what I'm talking about is there have been several people who have criticized us because we've been talking about um, black and white relations. relations. Um, they're saying, you know, maybe you should stop just talking about black and white relations right now because there are lots of other things out there that haven't gotten any, you know, any visibility at all. What Michelle said was, you know, this is my story. This is something that I need to tell, and this is something that you, uh, us, everyone else should hear. And so I think of that when I hear this person saying, stop doing the black and white thing and talk about the other things. And then, you know, I say, well, why are they saying that? Is you know, it's taking a minute to think about why they're saying that, but it's possibly because they have, they feel like they aren't being heard. Mm-hmm. So it's up to me to be patient uh, enough to try to understand critics uh, to try to understand the negative and the bad things. There there are those who have said as well, 
um, you know, you don't really understand even your own people. You don't understand African-Americans. And, you know, my first instinct is to go, really? Come on. But then when you stop and think about it, there are elements that I don't. So patience is really what this has taught me, that if it's going to be successful, if I or anything I'm doing is going to be successful, patience is absolutely necessary. Very interesting. We'd like to hear from you um, who listen to our podcast. You can write to us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com with any ideas you have for topics we should discuss, guests we should have on, or if you want to have, if you want to criticize us for something we've done, as JJ said, we will try to be very patient and listen to what you have to say. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Corr, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. It's important that we know our history. How many people here know that before there was Brown versus Board, there was Mendez versus Westminster? Cindy Benavides, the CEO of the League of United Latin American Citizens. We must never forget the legal battles we have fought, nor the ones we're still fighting today, whether it's protecting our children and farm workers from harmful pesticides, or protecting our community to make sure that they can vote. She joins us on Colors to talk about that community's victories, their challenges, struggles, and their future. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Time to go. And before we do, here's what we do. We say thank you to Mike Chikaitis, Audrey Henson, Mark Recton, Liz Anderson, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Beth Gibbs, Kathleen Floyd, Hillary Howard, Dimitri Sotis, James J.B. Brown, Ron Pemberton, Rick Massimo, Stephanie Gaines Bryant, Kevin Stanfield, Jamal Bowens, Thomas Warren, and for the music, Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and DJ Williams. And most of all, thank you for listening. And remember, keep talking to each other. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.